So you begin your day in your beautiful home. You look around and admire just how perfect your home is. It's not ornate or flashy. It's not something that you've put together to be or has been put together for you to be uh, impressive to others or to show off. But it's a home that's precisely done with you in mind. It has your things. It reflects you and you alone and your love of your Lord. And you leave your house and you go for a morning walk. Your neighbors greet you happily. You discover and are shocked that no one is grumpy or stressed. You stop and chat with a few of them. They're happy and content, ready to laugh. They are actually interested in you and your needs and interested in what you have to say. Someone invites you in for breakfast. You gratefully accept, enter their beautiful home. Discover more people whom you know in a fabulous banquet table. You are seated. Some are seated, some are standing. They're happily talking, laughing. You're seated and served. The person next to you opens up in conversation. It's actually something that you're very interested in. It's meaningful, stimulating conversation, not superficial or empty. Well, you eat delicious food. You bid your host goodbye with a hearty thanks. You continue your morning walk. You enter the streets of your city, a beautiful city, and you admire its layout. You've seen it a thousand times, but you're always, every time you see it, impressed by it. Sometimes it's silent. Sometimes, other times, beautiful music plays. More people are there and in large numbers, larger numbers. Some are running, some are playing, others are talking, others are embracing. All are happy and seek to give to everyone else. No one is selfish. No one is homeless. No one is poor or lonely or seeking harm or evil. No one is seeking sin. All are righteous. All are virtuous. All are happy. They talk with openness and warmth and graciousness. Not one word is said to impress or to patronize. Every word is meaningful. You stop, you talk, you run, you play, you embrace, you exalt. And you look to the east and you see your king. You lovingly look at your king. The ruler and creator of this city that is your home, he looks directly at you with a smile and a nod and a look in his eyes that could only be described as perfect love. Where are you? <laughs> Indeed, heaven. Uh, hard to get a picture of heaven, by the way, that's accurate. No one's been there. I don't think it looks like this. But I picked it anyway. There are others that are worse. No picture could do it justice. But what I did not say once was any description of a material whether the street was gold or your house was made of whatever, it was just yours. I described the people, I described their souls, I described their hearts. And I came woefully short, obviously, anybody would. The Bible from start to finish refers to this. A kingdom and a king 
at the start of the Bible, the king and the kingdom are shrouded in a lot of cloud, if you will, shadow. It's there. It's just not really revealed in much detail. And as you progress, or as, as we progress through the Bible, or as the Bible itself was accumulated, more and more words were added to Scripture. More and more of this cloud, this shadow was lifted away, and we see the king more clearly until that very day when he came here and he showed himself. He appeared on earth and revealed himself openly. He trained 12 disciples uh, into apostles and created through them and others the New Testament, which revealed his kingdom even more and revealed the king in all his glory. And can you believe it? That through faith alone in him, you are an eternal member of this kingdom of which you cannot ever be removed. We in the church are each one called to live our lives as in the way of and as members of this kingdom. Kingdom come where God's will will be done. We're every one of us called to live in it, to live by it. The way of that life is directly and only revealed in the Scripture. There is no other place that you'll find it. And the Scripture reveals it. We must be very careful not to interpret the Scripture the way that we want to see the kingdom, but the way that the kingdom is. In a world ruled by the devil... It's filled with lies, it's filled with deception, it's filled with evil, it's filled with sin. And far too many believers in the church, I mean true believers, are seeking a kingdom of their own making. And they're trying to worship God and mammon, of which our king said was impossible to do. He said, you must pick one. Far too many believers are seeking kingdoms of their own. They're the creation of their own minds. And in those kingdoms that they've created, they're searching for the things that are described in the real kingdom. Things like happiness, contentment, peace, no stress. And they seek those things in a kingdom of their own making. Do those things exist in your own made kingdom. I think you know the answer to that. Today we'll see one of the ways in which the enemy in this world mounts an attack against the truth of our faith. And the only way that we can live the joy of this kingdom to come is if our faith is not altered. Our faith is not um, watered down. Our faith is not compromised by human reason or human desire, but that our faith is a faith in heaven itself, which is revealed in the Word of God. So before we sing, let's open up in prayer. Let's be grateful that our Father in heaven has given us this kingdom through His Son, who is the King, and that all of us who have believed in Him are saved eternally in that place. And that right now we have God living in us and that we are his children. 
And by concentrating on his word, we will learn more and more of how to live that. So let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of yourself, giving us yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, God who is within us, reveals your Son. And when we see him, we see you. And by seeing you, we see your world, your kingdom, your heaven, of which we're not there now. We're not in the bodies that would fit there. We're in bodies that are earthly and in an earthly place that is filled with evil, sin, deceit. And our own flesh is tempted towards it. But, Father, you have given us power through Christ to overcome all of that. If we are diligent to seek, you tell us and promise us that we will find. Help us, Father, through your Spirit, each of us individually, to find what you want us to see today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to remind you before we sing that we're still uh, compiling a prayer list and those who want to be uh, part of that uh, prayer group, which will be sent out by, by text, uh, I think that's the method. Somewhere on your phone will come up a prayer list if you want to be a part of it. Uh, if you want to add to that prayer list, all of which you can do if you go on the website and go to letters and contact us, that email goes to me. And I'll forward it on to the person who's uh, uh, managing that. So I'll remind you for a few weeks to come, and, and then we'll get that rolling. Great. All right, let's all rise.
Uh, we're going to start in First Thessalonians, chapter two. Uh, today we're going to look at the apostasy that is to come or that is promised um, before the tribulation comes. Uh, and I will remind you that timing, when it comes to the future and prophecy of the future, timing gets pretty elastic. I think that's a great term for it uh, in, in terms of, you know, when is this apostasy coming? Is it here now? And it's impossible for us to tell if it's at its worst, right? Uh, could it get worse? Well, anything could get worse. What is truly and clearly commanded of us is that we're not to be of the world or a friend to the world. That is commanded of all Christians. We are not to be of the world nor a friend to the world. And as we talked in our opening, we have a kingdom, we have a king, we have a future, we have a hope. And yet still we find ourselves tempted to conform to the world. <clears throat> and why is that? And, it, you know, it, depending on where you are spiritually, uh, these, this happens in various degrees, but still, even if you are of the most mature, you're still con- uh, at least tempted to. We find in Galatians 2 that Peter... The Apostle Peter, who was at the time we would assume to be quite a mature believer, uh, was con- conformed to the way of the Jews against the Gentiles in the church. In other words, he started eating and mocking, the, eating with the Jews in the way of the Jews, according to the Mosaic Law, and then he was mocking and distancing himself from the Gentile believers in the church at Antioch where there were a lot of Gentile believers. And Paul tells us in Galatians that he called him out on it. And Paul publicly said to Peter, you're wrong in this, and uh, called him out in front of everybody. Peter conformed. Why? Well, to stand against this group of Jews who were still stuck under the law would have meant persecution and mockery to himself. Correct. He didn't want to do that. Neither do we. Why is it that new believers have a difficult time witnessing the gospel to strangers or or mostly to their friends and family? (coughs) It's because they get mocked. They get persecuted. You're a new believer. I remember this. I came storming into my Catholic home with my new gospel information. Yeah, I was mocked. We fear it. And so, it's our flesh. Our flesh wants to conform. With maturity brings clarity, though. Uh, With maturity brings the clarity that the issues involved in a person's life is of such great importance that the mockery doesn't matter anymore. In other words, you may mock me, but your life is on the line, and I have the gospel that can save you. So, mock away and, and... you gain courage through clarity of the issue. And the issue is dire. The people are going to be judged and go to the lake of fire. This is a reality. The Christians themselves are going to be deceived and be lost in this world and and really lose the experience of walking with Christ and experiencing freedom and life. And though they may hate you for telling them the truth, you do it anyway. 
with gentleness, of course. So, isn't it easier to give in? The Thessalonians are under persecution by their friends, family, and neighbors. Look at uh, 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul writes, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And how did they do that? For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the fill up the measure of their sin. I'll leave that last bit in verse 16 for a second. We find uh, the experience of the Thessalonian believer is a bit different than what I described as being in heaven. Instead of walking, you know, they get up in their own home and instead of being loved by their families, they're persecuted. Paul says, you, you have suffered like we did in Judea, in which they sought to kill us. Because of what? Because of our faith. How ironic is it that this faith has made the Thessalonians and all believers who truly put their faith in it better people. Makes them kinder. Makes them more patient. Makes them more gracious. Makes them more loving. Makes them friendlier. Makes them more moral. And yet, though this is obvious to them, to those around them, they still suffer at the hands of their own countrymen. A Thessalonian believer walks down the street, and instead of hearing hellos and how's it going, leers, uh, stares, and mockery, and probably under their breath, what a jerk. their families, their neighbors, and so on. You know, the world is filled with unhappy people. This is quite obvious. Uh, we went camping last week, and I found it, and I was thinking about this very issue uh, a lot last week as I was working on a project, and uh, I find that in the campground that everybody's more friendly because everybody's out camping. So to your neighbor, everybody says hello. Everybody's happy. Everybody's neighborly. Nobody locks up their stuff. You don't need to. No one's going to take your stuff. We we left all our stuff down on the beach. We camped at the beach, so no one touches it. No one's going to go near it. Now take that whole operation and put it in downtown Portland, and all your stuff is gone. Actually, yesterday in Dallas, somewhere, Chris dropped off some stuff for a, a needy mom in front of her door, and then a few hours later it was stolen, and the needy mom didn't get her stuff. And there's camera, there's a camera there. We, on the camera, we found out that some homeless person had come by, and see, they were kids' toys, and the homeless person <laughs> took them. So if you find somebody in Dallas playing with like a homeless guy with a rubber ducky or something, just say, hey, 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 that's not yours. 
The Thessalonians, however, have courage. They're new believers. And they have courage. Why is that? Because of verse 13. (coughs) It's the reason why Paul gives thanks for them. He said, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. What does that mean? That the word that you heard came directly from heaven. And therefore, it is from God and not from men. And this makes all the difference. Because when you understand, not that you're going to be a perfectly sinless person, but when you understand that the commands that are put upon you, the way to live and pray and serve and learn and study and, and on and on, come directly from heaven to you. It's not Paul giving the commands. It's God. It's not the pastor. It's God. Directly from your king. So they had courage because they received the word of God for what it was. And they said to themselves, we're going to obey God despite the fact that you here on earth who have no authority over the truth are going to persecute me for it. So were they in the tribulation? That was the issue. It's like, well, somebody somewhere, somehow, had (coughs) instructed them that they maybe they were in the day of the Lord. And things were tough for them. We can see how they might have believed that. So go to 2 Thessalonians 2.1, which is truly our main passage. (coughs) 2.1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. And that, of course, could mean second coming or rapture. But in reference to the first letter, it's very likely here a reference to the rapture that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us. So somehow they got this information that the rapture either already happened or the, and that they were in the day of the Lord, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction." We know who this man of lawlessness is. We're going to look at him a little bit more this week. Uh, He is the beast, the eleventh horn, the seventh head. (laughs) He has many names. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. All right, so have they entered the tribulation? The answer to Paul is no. What interests us here is the fact that Paul states <coughs> excuse me, that the apostasy comes first. This Greek word apostasia is one of the easier Greek vocab words to remember. Um, but it comes first, and, and that's the Greek word is proton. That's where that word comes from, first particle. <laughs> but uh, proton means first. and just to say, That's exactly what Paul says, unless it comes first. So the indication here is that an apostasy is going to come before the tribulation. Now, when he says before, again, Time is elastic here when it comes to eschatology, meaning the 
doctrines of the end times. It could be the day before, the week before, the year before, right? Or 100 years before. We're not told these things. Just before. So first an apostasy must come, and the Thessalonians <clears throat> might be able to say, well, Paul, I just walked down the street of my neighborhood, and it was apostasy everywhere. And they all hate me, you know, and, and I'm suffering for it. So are we in the apostasy now? <clears throat> Of course, Paul adds to that something that is very obvious, is the man of sin in the temple. And that they could say, no, he's not. At the time Paul writes this, there is a temple. Right now, there is not one. So we could say that we're not in the tribulation just by the fact that the temple isn't there. But he also says that the man of, this man of sin will be revealed. And that may mean that the man of sin will be revealed before the tribulation. Again, how much before? Again, we have this word first. So what does that mean? Does it mean the day before? The tribulation begins when this man of sin signs a covenant with Israel. He's got to be around the day before the covenant, has he not? Of course he does. So when will he be revealed? <clears throat> Who knows? God doesn't give us the details. Like, you know, we want the details. And hence, when we pursue the details in a way that the Word of God doesn't say, so we start making up false doctrines. And, uh, and honestly, we miss the whole point. The point is, is that something is coming that is awful. And it's going to be worse. The indication of an apostasy before the church in the tribulation is undoubtedly true. But... Is there apostasy now? Now, this word apostasy, apostasia, it means a, literally it means to depart from. <coughs> so apostasy is in a departure, departure from the truth, departure from morality, a departure from law, a departure from because he's called lawless, right? This man. But some think it means a departure like from the earth. So apostasia means the rapture. Talked to someone who believes that, and uh, I'm like, well, you know, I kind of see your point. I don't agree with it, but you can't say for sure. The word means departure, but it seems in context that it's a departure from law, from truth. And, you know, are you in apostasy now? Are you surrounded by it? Obviously. We say turn on the news, but, I mean, you turn on the news, read a newspaper, uh, I don't know, 100 years ago, you're going to see it. If you lived during World War One or World War Two, would you say you were in a time of apostasy? If you lived in Jerusalem when the Romans were about to destroy it, were you, would you say you're in a time of apostasy? If you lived in medieval Europe, or even in the United States, and you were a slave in the South, would you say that you were in the time of apostasy? A lot of believers as slaves in the South. That's where those great Negro spirituals come from. Of course you would. This is what's so amazingly smart about God. Every generation of the church sees themselves in the age of apostasy, but none of us know if it's that age that is the last one. 
God has us always looking and never knowing. Smart. Not like us. We're not smart. We want to know the day and the hour. And God says, nope, you will not. Keep looking. Remember the Lord said, straighten up and look. Be watchful. I'm coming at an hour that you do not expect. So, what is marvelously interesting here is apostasy. The Bible writes so much, and the New Testament especially. We'll turn it on to later. We'll look at it this week a little bit. But Second Peter chapter two, the entire chapter, I think it's 22 verses of Peter going on and on and on about how awful apostasy is and false teachers, and he has no love for them and no tolerance for it. It's rough. <clears throat> the New Testament speaks of it a lot to us. Why would why do we need to hear of it? Why do we need to know it? It's because, obviously, it can affect us. Why would the writers write so much about religious apostasy when we are not in that? We're not religious. We're in the family of God. We're Christians who worship the Lord. But why do we need to know it? It's because it can affect us greatly. And if you don't think it can, then you're probably affected. Apostasy is both religious and political. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's actually fascinating to see both of these try and work together throughout history to control people, to control nations. There's the state and the church, and they often try to work together to control the population. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, we see the same thing happening. There's the state, who is the beast, and there is the religious, which is that scarlet woman on the beast in uh, Revelation 17, or Revelation 12, if you know anything about that. But anyway, what we find out in Revelation is that the state and the religious, they war with each other at one point in the tribulation because they can't get along. In the unified kingdom of this great ruler that Satan puts on earth, the beast, he can't control his religious establishment. And he hates them and wars with them. It's amazing. This has gone on and on and on. So we're going to look at a precursor to this because we see it in our day as well. And we're surrounded by it both political and religious apostasy. And it's designed to affect us. It's designed to affect us in a way because we have, and it it is effective in a way because we want to conform to things. Our flesh wants to conform. You know, know, we're not conforming in the way of going to some religious church and, and bowing down to some idol. You know, we're not worshiping some statue or medallion or, you know, some religious thing like Catholics do or others do. But <clears throat> that doesn't mean that we're not affected by it. You know, are we seeking happiness in places that the world does? Are we seeking um, confirmation from people in the world because we don't want to really be persecuted? Are we silent when we should witness? Are we silent when we should speak the truth? 
when that tru- we know that when we say the truth to the certain person that they're going to react poorly. So we stay silent. That's conforming. That's con- I, I just want peace, you know. I just want peace. Well, Christ said I didn't come to bring peace, did I? But to bring a sword. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> We're going to look at an example of this in Israel. We need to know, each of us as believers, how to live holy and free. Holy, meaning sanctified, and free. By living sanctified, what we mean is that every person and everything in our lives is set apart unto God. You may ask, how do I set a person apart unto God? Don't lock them up in the church, right? I set a person apart unto God by treating them in holiness. I set a thing, whatever the possession is. It could be a church. It could be a car or a house or the amount of money you have in the bank. I set that apart unto God. That makes it sanctified. It's to his use, not to mine. That's his stuff, not mine. That spouse is his, not mine. That child is his, not mine. And in all those things, when I see that, I become a servant of God in everything. Because none of it belongs to me. It belongs to my master, and I am a steward. And Jesus told some marvelous parables about the good steward. Always watchful, always looking, always ready, but also always doing the will of the master, knowing that he could come at any time. For uh, what, one of the pitfalls for us is that, and it's true for the entire human race, but we're not immune to it as believers, is that we want things, and the things that we want are not wrong. Is happiness wrong? No. Pow- how about power? You want power. Is that wrong? No. God has power. I always remember C.S. Lewis speaking of in Mere Christianity how he was never one to take a risk. He, he's, he doesn't like taking risks. And so he was never tempted with gambling. And, in, and he, he says in the book that he kind of admires some of the gamblers <laughs> because they're great risk takers. And that's a good thing. Poor application. But that becomes the point, doesn't it? Is love wrong? No. But it's the application of it. Power is not wrong, but how do I get it? Happiness, totally not wrong. But where am I looking for it? Israel wanted a king. They got a little scared. Notice 1 Samuel 8.1. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. That biblical narrative has opened up to me in ways that I've not seen before, and it's marvelous because this is a carbon copy of 1 Samuel chapter 1 where Eli, the high priest, has two knucklehead sons who are absolutely evil, sinful guys. Hophni and Phinehas, they're terrible. 
And this great man, and Eli, Eli won't discipline him. He, Eli's one of those dads who are like, he treats his sons better than he treats God, even though he's a worshiper of God. Don't doubt that Eli the high priest was a worshiper of God. He was. But he loved his sons more. And, the, and so Samuel, the great man of God, has two knucklehead sons. <clears throat> I'm sure he trained him up right. I don't know that, though, you know. But anyway, chapter, uh, verse 2. Now, the name of the firstborn was, first was Joel, and the name of the second, Abba, Abba Ha, or Abba Jah. And they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Hmm, sounds familiar. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together to come to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. And they're not going to be able to do the job that you have done for us. Meaning judge. Now appoint a king for us. Now if they had stopped there, actually they really should have phrased this properly. Is it time for God to give us a king, Samuel? Can you find out? Or, Samuel, we understand that your sons stink at judging. So, what are we going to do in the future after you've retired? But they don't do that. They say, we want a king. So now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations like all the nations. And that means, now the nations that they're going to be speaking of are the nations that are around them, and the nations around them all have oriental monarchs. Now, oriental monarch is of a certain kind. This is not a Roman republic, so to speak. Uh, It's not a democracy that we might find in Athens, which worked, did not work. It was terrible. But <clears throat> this is what they want is a strong monarch. He's going to be a warrior. He's going to have a ton of wives. So he's going to have a ton of children. And he's going to be very rich. And we find out that the Ammonites are encroaching against Israel. And these elders are a little afraid of what's going to happen. And they don't have Samuel anymore. They want someone who's going to solve their problems. And here's their thinking. An outward change of government will solve our problems. Does that sound familiar to you? Right? What's the solution to the problems in America? Trump gets elected. Republicans get elected. Republicans take the House. Right? We fill the judiciary with conservatives. (coughs) Whatever. That is not the issue, nor was it the issue with Israel. The problem with people is their sin. The problem with people is their selfishness. The problem with people is their desire to control others. It is their pride. That is the problem. Say, why do they keep electing the same idiots? Because that's what they want. But that's still not the issue. The solution in Israel is not a king. 
I mean, not a king like other nations, but the solution in Israel is a change of heart. Was it wrong for them to have a king? Is it wrong for you to want to be happy? Is it wrong for you to want to not be lonely? Is it wrong for you to not uh, to want to be appreciated for what you do? No, nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> God promised them way back in Genesis. When the nation was really born. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, he says in Genesis 17, and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. This is promise. So why is God, Samuel is going to be very upset that they want a king and God is going to back him up on that and say that Israel has rejected me by wanting a king. But God said that they could have a king. But not this way. That's the problem. Like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. God, I want happiness and I want it the way that all the world gets it. Well, how do you want to be happy, God would say. Well, I'm happy when I'm drunk. Can I have that? Well, you can. But you're going to have real big issues with that. You continue in that path. I'm happy when I'm high. Well, there's going to be real ramifications to that. You know, I'm also happy when I get illicit sex. Well, or dream about it and fantasize about it. I'm going for the big three addictions, and then I'm turning to the other stuff. So hold your, hold on if you're not addicted to those things. <coughs> you can want illicit sex, and yeah, it'll make you happy for a little bit. But you will suffer gravely in your soul in the long run just like you will with the other things. But, uh, but they make me happy. Yes, I know that they do for a while. And then they don't. You know this. That's not the happiness I have for you. But that's the happiness I want. That means that you want a king like the nations. You want happiness like the world. But you know what, God, I don't want those things. I, I'm happy when others are doing what I tell them to. They're behaving in the way that I want them to. Yeah, you're not me. <laughs> it may make you happy that others follow you and do your bidding, but uh, you live in a fallen world, and that's not, that's not the source of happiness. I'm happy when I put others down. Uh, not, not really, you know, God, I, I worship you. right? So I don't want to put them down, but I want to win the argument. You know what makes me happy? When I'm smarter than everybody. Mm, I know, that does make you happy. But that's your pride. It'll make you happy for a little while, and then you're going to crash. You're not going to have relationships that work. You're not going to have humility, and you're going to be, your pride is going to increase, and you're not going to know anything about me. So on and on and on, we want, that's why this applies to us. <clears throat> Where are you seeking happiness that is like the world? And, you know, the great place to find this is in prayer. But who of us are going to God repeatedly and saying, can you check my heart, Lord? And see where I'm seeking happiness? See where I'm seeking things that are not you? 
And that we have to we have to make that decision. You know, I love how Christ says you can't serve God in mammon. He didn't say really money, although mammon often is money. But mammon is any idol that you bow to that you seek happiness in. Right? Now, uh, worldly things are not sinful. Right? It's okay for them to have a king. It's just that the king has to be has to be elected in a certain way. Same with everything else I just mentioned. God doesn't say drinking is a sin. Drunkenness is. Right? Certain drugs that we take to, to help us, that our doctors prescribe, there's, they're not sinful, but that's between you and God. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being appreciated. There's nothing wrong with telling people, you know, you should do it this way, and they actually do it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with earthly, worldly things, as long as they're done in God's way. The kingdom of God is made of things that are done in God's way, and only in God's way. So where are you and I spending our time? That's what God is getting at here. Where are we spending? Where's our mammon? Where is it? And God is going to say, get rid of it. Destroy it. Not wrong for them to have a king. But what's wrong with their desire? Well, we know. They want to be like other nations. Now, how is it different? Go to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, 14. So, a king not like other nations, maybe that means that it's, I don't know, an angel. How about that? Or some other. Maybe the theophany of God. You know, that God, Jesus, shows up or... The Son of God shows up in the place of judging and judges, and then he disappears. Uh, God could do it a thousand different ways, any way that he wants. When God, first off, God chooses the king. God makes sure to tell them how the king will come. First he says, I choose him. Now, this implies that he chooses them when he desires, correct? We're not, if, we say, if, if we go to God or they say the Jews go to God and say, well, uh, we want a king and we want him now. God will say, well, all right, you know, you want a king. Maybe it's not time for the king. I'm going to give you a king, but maybe it's not time. How many of us do that? I mean, it's an obvious application of God, I want this, and I think it's going to be right and make me happy. And God may say, yeah, it is going to be right, and it will make you happy, but it's just not time. But I demand it now. Well, be quiet, baby. That's what children do. You're to be treated as an adult. Be patient. Do you trust me? Deuteronomy 17:14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you. Right? Well, wait a minute. He's, he's, God's very upset. God said that they rejected him when they wanted a king. But he says here, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. 
Now, if you're thinking here, who's the first king of Israel? That's a good good trivia. Saul. And uh, King Saul, son of Cush. Kish. Not Cush, Kish. Uh, whatever. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have any vowels anyway, so it's Kish. <laughs> um, he's chosen by God. He is. Same with David. David is chosen by God. But the timing here is an issue. You know, when? When should the king come? But anyway, God says here, I will choose your king, one from among your countrymen, who shall be, who, uh, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. So God chooses the king. And he has to be an Israelite, right? He can't be a foreigner. Now, how this wonderfully applies to us is that God has chosen your king. You and I have a king. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's one of our countrymen. He's human, and we're in union with him. We're actually his bride, and he's in union with us. We have a perfect king who is elected by God who is our countryman. So what does this tell us also concerning the things in our lives that we have to let God choose them? Now, God doesn't shine a spotlight on the person you're supposed to marry, nor on the thing that you should buy or how much of it you should have. God doesn't send you a note in the mail that says, give this much away and hold on to this. He doesn't tell us. But, God does choose our things. In the New Jerusalem, when we are where we are for all of eternity, God has chosen all our things. Even Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Right? We don't hear us saying, well, well, wait, wait, before you go, can I have a two-car garage? Can I, I mean, I, I like blue. Could you make blue, a blue things? Could I have oak furniture? I don't like pine. You know, like what? We don't give him requests. He goes and makes it. He chooses for us. But we're very obstinate about this as believers. We want to choose what's going to make us happy. And we throw our time and energy into it. So how do we know a thing or a person is something that God has chosen? Well, that's the second part. The king has to follow the law of God. And when we do, we find out what's right and what's not. We even discover the right people to marry, the right friends to have. We don't choose perfectly, but as we follow God and put him first, we come to realize that you know maybe that friend isn't really a friend. Time to separate, go, go separate ways. Marriage is different. Just have to throw that out there. <laughs> There's only one reason God gives for divorce, and that is infidelity. But a thing, to have a certain amount of money built up, and I love, I love to open up my bank account and see all those zeros that for the first time ever are on the left side of the decimal point. And, you know, how much of that do I give? To whom? Not just to the church, but who do I give to? And, you know, what do I do? What what do I serve in? Who do I serve? And if you're following God, you find these things out. 
And again here, prayer is a vehicle to find out directly from the throne of God who, what, and how to deal with them. Because it's not just what you choose, right? For the king, it's not just that he's chosen by God, but he has to be handled in a certain way. (coughs) Excuse me. All day with this. My throat will clear up in about 10 minutes when I'm done. Deuteronomy 17, 16. Look at verse 16. There are four laws given for the king. Three are negative. One is positive. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Now, this should be clarified because having a bunch of horses doesn't seem to be, you know, why would that be an issue? But the horses are referring here to a military. And it's not that he couldn't have a military. It's just that like an eastern monarch would do, he would build it huge. We'll see why that becomes a problem. He shall not multiply horses for himself. nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now, the king could certainly have a wife, a wife. The king could have horses and an army. The king could have riches. Of course he would. What is warned against here is multiplying them. And that's when they become mammon. They become idols. And seeking to multiply these things, the king would not be seeking God. It's amazing how when we seek God, God shows us how much to have and to stop there. When we seek God, God tells us and reveals to us we should have this And that's okay, and only so much. To be able to have so much of a thing and not go too far is called temperance. And it's a wonderful virtue. Temperance is self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. To know what things to have and what things are not to have is complete humility and obeying your Lord. And this the king is to have. Now, if the king is clear in the scripture here, that if the king doesn't do this, it's not the king alone who will suffer. God says, all of you will suffer for the actions of this king. We must seek him. We must sanctify the things that we have and use them to his good, meaning God's. And that is called sanctification. Sanctification means to set that thing apart, and this is God's. It belongs to him. And that includes your time, by the way. And everything that you do, everyone, everything is his. Will it not be in the future in the New Jerusalem? Of course it will. And yet God has left us here in this world that is ruled by the devil. It's full of deception and apostasy and people Christians included, who don't get it. And we're motivated, or at least tempted, to conform to the world and to the flesh and to not really stand so firm on the truth. Right? Aren't you mocked for that? That's one of the things we'll see. It's in Jude, uh, the book of Jude, um, that the mockers come. They mock. 
They mock the fundamental truths of the, of the Christian faith. Do you know our Lord was born of a virgin? <clears throat> That's pretty mocked. Do you know that he's coming again? Do you know that he was resurrected? Do you know that he died for the sins of the whole world and the salvation is in no other name? It's mocked. The world calls our gospel restrictive. It doesn't allow enough people in. Well, it allows everybody in who believe in Christ as their Savior. But as Jesus said, the gate is broad and wide that leads to destruction. And that's what the world wants. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to be destroyed. Now, the fourth rule for the king. Look at uh, 17.18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. I love that it's in the presence of the priests. He doesn't get to cheat. (laughs) They're like, did you copy Jeremiah? He's like, "Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many chapters? Oh, like all ten of them. He didn't do it. Like 52 chapters in Jeremiah. Now, <clears throat> so in the presence of the Levitical priests, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom and in the midst of Israel. So don't multiply military, don't multiply wives, don't multiply gold and silver. Write out the entire law of your own hand and read from it every day and obey me. That is the law of the king. And God says, I choose him. Now, is this like all nations? Is this how nations elect their kings? Is this how, is this how nations demand of their kings? That they follow the law of God? Uh, That they don't multiply gold? No. Hence, this problem. We want one like all the nations. They already know Deuteronomy. The king is not at all like other nations. He is so different, it's ridiculous. See, in Israel, you have to say, well, see, in, in the other nations... They have a God. I don't know what I'm looking for here. Oh, that'll work. They have a God that's something like that. It's a statue. Genie. (laughs) And, you know, it's something that's tangible. You can touch it. You can bow down to it. You can see it. But as God mocks these things in his words so wonderfully, God is so ironically funny, he says, well, when they talk, you let me know. And by the way, I want to go to court with your, uh, he says, I want to go to court. I want to debate your God. So make sure you carry him in. And it's God's way of saying he can't really walk, can he? They want that. that, And and so if I'm in Israel, I say, oh, no, 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 that's not our God. Our God's invisible. And he's the only one true God. And he elects our king. And he gives us all our laws. And all the nations around them would say, you guys are crazy. And they do the same to us now. You're crazy. They mock you for it. 
And so what do we do? We're tempted to. I'm not saying you do. We don't talk about it much. But, you know, does God want us to be silent? In fact, Jesus himself said that we'll be rewarded in heaven for not denying the Father in front of others, that we confess him to others. And this doesn't mean get in people's faces and be one of those, be rude. It doesn't mean that. But we are tempted to conform. And we must not. In the New Jerusalem, are people openly talking about the Lord? <laughs> That's a stupid question. All right, so go to 1 Samuel 8. Stop it here. Because this is what God says the king's going to do. 1 Samuel 8, 7. Yep, my throat is finally clear. At least I don't smoke anymore. That was... It cleared my throat all the time. <laughs> Less phlegm. First Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Right? Why? Because they want a king like the other nations. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods. They haven't changed. This is the way of the human race. It's not just Jews, correct? So they are doing to you also. And that's a great line there. They rejected me, Samuel. They're going to reject you. Right? Don't get so uppity and upset and stressed out by the fact that when you do honestly and openly speak the truth and you do it so well that the people still mock you and don't care and reject it. They're rejecting God, not you. So he says in verse 9, So then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people and they who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them, place them for himself in his chariots, many make them soldiers, and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. This is my favorite part, the last part. They'll run before his chariots. What a useless thing to do with people. Right? I'm going to take your son from your home. The son whom you love. I'm going to take him. Uh, okay, what are you going to do with him? He's just going to run in front of my chariot. I love. My, you're going to take the son that I love just so he can run in front of your chariot? Yeah, because I'm king. Right? It's just useless. But think, do people, rulers of all ages and today, Take your things and your children and do useless stuff with them? <clears throat> Verse 12, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, meaning he'll have a huge, an, uh, a huge bureaucracy, and some to do his plowing and reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. That's eminent domain, by the way. 
He will take a tenth of your seed in your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. That's taxation. You know, we look at that now and go, wow, only 10%? That's pretty awesome tax bracket. But they went from 0% to 10%. <clears throat> he will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And this actually happens verbatim. This doesn't come true until Solomon, by the way. It comes word for word. It's Solomon. Solomon violates the first three laws. We assume he violates the fourth. But he multiplies horses. He multiplies wives. He multiplies gold. He does it all. He breaks it all. God warned them. And he does exactly this to the people of Israel. He conscripted them as laborers. Solomon did. He said, you'll cry out in that day, which they did, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So this list that we just read is stated over 3,000 years ago. And we're so familiar with it today, aren't we? Because things haven't changed. Things haven't changed. And as we'll see this week, we're in a time of imperialism. We're in the fourth, the fourth of the kingdoms. Uh, and it's, and it's going to go on until the Lord returns. It's not going to change. This unfairness, this burden, this slavery that is of the earth. Hence, you will be persecuted. You'll be persecuted for what you say. You'll be mocked if you hold to the truth and present the truth. But you have to realize who your king really is. And if you do, then you will realize that you have a king to obey who is perfect. Right? He's perfect. Jesus doesn't violate any of these laws. He fits them perfectly. He's elected by God. He's one of our kinsmen. He does not multiply for himself any of the things said there. That He has one wife who is the church. Say Israel as well, that he has uh, and his army is is him. Right? When he returns, he doesn't even have us fight. He does all the fighting. And that implies in some way, and he also doesn't multiply. He doesn't care about earthly goods. He cares about you. You have a perfect king to obey. His commandments are in Scripture alone. We'll see that this week. Apostasy. Is, is only one way to stand against apostasy, and it is to literally translate this. Literally. Not based on your experience or your emotions or what Grandpa used to say. Unless Grandpa's right. But it has to be literal from here, interpreted. So the commands are there in the Scripture alone. We have to choose things and people the way that he chooses them. If I'm seeking happiness in the wrong thing, and it's, God's going to make that very clear, then I have to change that. That word is repentance. And God gives us time for repentance. God said, uh, Samuel said, all of these things are going to happen to you, and it wouldn't be decades until it did. God gave them time. Saul was a bad king. Even David, David multiplied wives for himself when he shouldn't. 
David was a great king, certainly not perfect. The people had the opportunity to repent of their and change their hearts to follow God, and they did not. <clears throat> we have time as well. The things and people in our lives must be sanctified as holy. Use them the way that your time, the things, your whatever, your entertainment, the people in your lives, don't use them, but treat them as holy. And don't be afraid to be different because your king is not of this world. He's very different. And so should you be. You have been given the birthright of the kingdom of heaven. And so we all must live in it. Live the way of that. Not stressed out, happy, content, loving the Lord, loving his word, and doing his will. And God promises us blessings galore. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the truth that comes to us that sets us free. We pray, Father, that through your word we would um, be affected or impacted in, in a way in which we would live for your world, your kingdom, your heaven, even though we are in a foreign land as we are sojourners in it. Guide us, Father, into the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll take our offering and that will do it, as you know. Uh, Let's pray for our offering. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give as your priests who worship you. We give as an offering and a sacrifice to you. We ask, Father, that you guide us in the use of these finances to your glory. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. gathering. Thank you for the church that you've provided for us to be and to gather together in. Uh, Closing moments are always dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. And if you have not, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world. He is the only Savior of the world. Believe upon Him. If you believe in Him, you will be saved. That's what He says. He has done all the work. You can't work for it. But you can have it by faith. It is a gift. You reach out your hand to receive that gift by faith. Believing Jesus Christ is your Savior. And you will be saved. He died for you. And he was resurrected on the third day. All of it is true. Born of a virgin. Died on the cross for the sins of the world. Resurrected on the third day. Ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He longs for you to be with him forever. Believe in Him and you will.
Thank you, Father, and thank you for all you do. In Christ's name, amen.